0: The Boundless authenticity podcast. how's it going, Jerry?
1: Well, it's going good. I um, you know, just got back from something I had to do. Sorry I had to put you off until uh, later in the night. Yeah, you know, t- tried to reach out and, and, and you know, using the same address you you wrote to me on and it I don't know what happened. Yeah. So little... anyway, we we got together
0: yeah, we made it. <laughs> um, I was going to do my usual pre-recorded interview. I mean, sorry, introduction and everything. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let Jerry introduce himself. So tell everybody who you are and what you do.
1: Well, I'm a I'm in private practice right now. i um, using a, a system called MACE. It's an energetic system. Uh, energetic system, um, it takes the spirit into account, which no other psychotherapy does that. It, it, it can discharge trauma in no time, uh, and it, the changes are permanent. So it's not like regular psychotherapy. Uh, it, it goes into the subconscious, it gets these subconscious programs that were uh, put in there during during traumas, and it, it just discharges. And, uh, it was invented by not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. No, he had nothing to do with, with psychology other than, uh, I guess, he, he got a master's in counseling. But the guy was a ship captain. He was a master mariner and a harbor uh, harbor master. But he was, he was a genius. And he put together this system and saw that the mind isn't what you thought it was. And that the spirit is absolutely necessary <clears throat> to engage with if you're going to remove mental illnesses. Now, it, it gets rid of most common mental illnesses. I've had a little trouble using it with schizophrenics because they're they've moved into another area of reality. So it's it, it's partially viable with them. It gets rid of the trauma that that the these voices feed off of. Um, but it's, it's an amazing new, new therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. There's more about it on my website at jerrymarzinski.com There's also a lot of information there about uh, the voices and what they actually are. But, uh, mm-hmm. My work history is I started off working in the biggest psychiatric hospital on the planet. Uh, the time I got there, there were 10,000 patients um, it sprawled over like, 2,000 acres. It was the size of a small city, and they had uh, every mental illness known to man in there. And uh, I was fascinated with abnormal psychology, and it was like, uh, and and I was an adrenaline junkie, so it, it was a perfect combination for me. But it was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was. You had to drive 30 miles to get to the nearest uh, McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So I started off there. I spent seven years there studying the voices that schizophrenics heard. Uh, because Nobody was paying any attention to what what they were saying. Everybody had been brainwashed into believing that the voices were merely hallucinations. And I believed that, too, when I got there. Then I started seeing that there was a correlation between how these people behaved and how strong their voices were and how long they were listening to them or how much they were listening to them. If they were listening to those voices a lot and the voices were strong, they would get into some kind of trouble. They'd get into fights. They'd, they'd uh, get thrown out of their classes. Uh, they'd cause disruptions. Uh, there, there was a, a, a nasty correlation between the voices and their behavior and I didn't know what, what, was, what the voices were. I mean, in graduate school, they taught us that they were hallucinations. So you think of a hallucination, you think of you know, something crazy and doesn't make any sense, and uh, it's all over the place. I thought they were word cabbage, you know? So after finishing my, my master's degree and going to work at the state hospital, it was like, I was expecting these guys to be babbling nonsense. But that's, what, that's not what it was. I mean, uh, the, the, my formal education didn't prepare me much at all for, for being on the front lines. I don't know what had just happened there. So, uh, yeah, it was a to- totally different world. Um, so uh, I started off at, at Central State Hospital. Um, I, I worked in county hospital ERs. I worked in mental health centers. I worked in the psychology department of a large state prison for 17 years. I worked as a psychiatric con- contractor. Uh, in the last 10 years I spent working in hospital emergency rooms and hospitals all over the city, and I'm now in private practice. So I've been on the front lines my entire career, you know, it's, and it, it's far from academia. You know, matter of fact, when after working at the state hospital and then going back into a PhD program, it was like, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) You know, what what you're telling me doesn't match what I personally experienced. And it's of no use whatsoever from where I came from. You know, and it, it was just really piled higher and deeper. So it was like, I'm like, what am I doing here? So after two years, I, I I bugged out of that that program with almost a straight A average. It was like, I just just left, just dropped and left. Uh, it, it was it was actually making me sick. So uh, you know, as I like I was telling you, I went into psychology to try to figure out what was happening with me. I mean, who I was. I I had a pretty mixed up, uh, fairly violent childhood. And it's like, you know, what's going on? How do I straighten this out? What do I do about this? Education wasn't of any use whatsoever, at least the undergraduate. So I went, well, they must be hiding the, the uh, you know, the real truth of what's going on in the master's programs. And so I applied for a master's program in, in rehabilitation counseling and with a you know psychiatric bent to it and you know that helped that helped some but there were no real answers there you know so i went well they must be hiding it in the phd program and they only give it to phds you know it was like some mass secret and once i got in there after two years they didn't know what the frick was going on either you know, so it was like there were no answers in the formal educational system. It just wasn't there. What the frick is going on with these these crazy people? And what's going on with me? And why is all this happening? And there there weren't there weren't any answers. Matter of fact, some of those some of those professors in the Ph.D. program were just egotistic or maniacs. Um, it it was it was nuts. So you know, I started I started into psychology and and higher education with a distrust of um authority anyway and i didn't like in psychology it was like okay just study all this stuff and, and spit it back on test. you know it's like there was no way to test whether there was any validity to it or not you know in and um in engineering you can you can go and you can you can build something and see if the principles work uh you know, in, in medicine, you can give a medicine or you can do a procedure and you can see it work. But it wasn't so in psychology. It, it was just like, oh, you learn this stuff, you know, spit it out and we'll give you a grade. And then, mm-hmm. then you graduate with a degree in psychology and, and, and there's no way to test any of it out. You know, so there wasn't any way to to really test it out. In the, in, in the master's degree with counseling, yeah, you can work with people and you could see how these different techniques work to some degree, but they still weren't getting at what the mind was and how it operated and how you cure mental illness. It, it was more like, this is how you listen to people and pay attention to people. And, you know, make them feel that they're being listened to and reflect back to them, that kind of stuff like that. But they weren't getting at the real problems of, of what was working these people. Um, and and neither did they in the PhD program. You know, they cured nothing. So what happened back in, you know, I don't know when it was, the 50s or something, William Wont, uh, one of the famous psychologists, went, well, you know, there was all this talk about were spiritual beings and what's spirit and what's mind and all that kind of stuff none of it was measurable none of it was testable so he went well you know screw screw that stuff i'm going to go into behavior and you can measure and see behavior okay the behavior is only a manifestation of the spirit it's only a manifestation of, of the the entity that lives in the body you know the mind it's it's only a manifestation of thought so Thought is energetic. The mind is energetic. You can't see a thought. You can't see the mind. You can't measure a thought. You know, it, it It's intangible, you know, like the spirit. You know, uh, nobody's ever found a thought in the brain. Nobody's operated on the brain and never saw a thought in there. You know, nobody's ever seen the spirit. You know, and, and they would. They would <laughs> there was one time where they, they, were, they were measuring people before they died and after they died to see if they could measure the difference in the weight once the spirit was gone. And it was showing nothing. So they were, they were <laughs> confounded. So psychology and psychiatry are completely ignoring the spirit. And so is the educational system. And there is no way to figure out what's going on with mentally ill people without understanding the mind and the spirit and they have no idea what the mind is or how it operates. And, th- and that wasn't known until maybe 15 years ago when uh, a fellow named John Mase, he was a genius, but he had nothing to do with psychology and psychiatry or, or mental health at all. He went into counseling. I think he got a degree in counseling because he was interested in there. But his occupation was as ship captain. He drove these big freighter boats across the ocean he was also he was a ma- master mariner. Uh, he was a genius, and he was also a, a pilot, a uh, you know, harbor pilot. But he was also a philosopher, and he was self-taught. So he, he had a clean slate when he started. He figured out what the mind was and how it worked. But now the the rest of the educational system and and psychology and psychiatry are totally totally ignoring him. I mean, this guy is of the magnitude of a Sigmund Freud. He's got the answers, and they're ignoring him. So I didn't know about him when I was, uh, I mean, I only found out about him maybe two years ago. But as an undergraduate, you know, I I wasn't getting any answers. I found out later that 80% of what they publish in psychology is not replicable. That means it's garbage. Yeah, you know, and then when you get into it, the master's degree or you get into graduate school, it's publish or perish, you know. And and I found out in the PhD program they don't care what you publish, as long as you get published, it doesn't matter, you know. It's the number of publications, whether you have anything to say or not. So uh, yeah, after I saw this this kind of stuff, uh, I started suspecting. You know, what was going on in psychology. And, uh, but I I couldn't verify any of it. You know, you look in the back of the textbooks and, and you have all these, you know, pages and pages of references. This guy got the information from this guy who got it from this guy who got it from that guy. It's, it's like they're all just trading. It's like an incest of ideas. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they were, they were, they were trading ideas with each other. You know, so, uh, the only class i took that where you could actually verify the results that were happening in psychology was experimental psychology in the rat labs um, so i i remember one paper we had to read for abnormal psychology it said that if two lunatics had the same delusion so if if one thought he was george washington and the other guy thought he was george washington this clinical psychologist was writing that one of them would have to change their delusion. They'd have to change the way they were thinking. And I went, why, why would that have to happen? You know, they're both nuts, why would they care? Why would, you know, it made no sense to me. You know, so I tucked it away in the back of my mind. Eight years later, when I was on the second floor of a psych unit, uh, I, was, I heard a, a, a fellow who was talking to himself. And it was like he was talking on the telephone and, and it was like a one-way conversation. It was like he was answering somebody and he was answering questions or responding to whatever they were saying. So I tried to creep up on him and, uh, you know, listen. And, and it was just like a one-way telephone conversation where you can only hear half of the conversation. He was talking to the voices and, and I had no idea that they made sense. I thought they were word cabbage, you know? And uh, I, I verified that later, that they make sense. They, they talk to these people in complete sentences. They're not cabbage, they're garbage. They're not babble. They're not word cabbage. And um, he, saw, he called me listening to him, and uh, he turned around, and I said, Hey, I'm Jerry. I'm the psych for this unit. I haven't seen you before. What's your name? And he looks me in the eye, and he goes, I'm Jesus Christ. And I look at him, and I went, okay, here's my chance. I said, no, no, you're not Jesus Christ. I'm Jesus Christ. And I sat there, and I'm like, okay, what's he going to do? You know, is a clinical psychologist that told us that bull crap in, uh, in undergraduate. Is it true? Here it goes. I'm going to see for myself. And he thinks about it. He looks up, and he turns around. And he goes, okay, we can both be Jesus Christ. And he walks away. <laughs> Just, you know, and I'm like okay, what else did they lie to me about? You know, what else? You know, because there's no way I could pro- disprove anything they were saying. Um, Great. So, uh, you know, the college didn't prepare me for what... what <laughs> it didn't yeah. prepare me for the front lines. It didn't prepare me to work at one of the biggest psychiatric hospitals on the planet. It didn't teach me what... You know, it it it, it, it taught you descriptions of what these mental illnesses were mm-hmm. you know so here's here's in the dsm the dictionary of statistical mental uh, what is this this directory of statistics uh, uh, of mental illnesses the uh, dsm they had
0: diagnostic the, statistical Statistic manual.
1: manual right they yeah. had these massive descriptions of what these mental illnesses were you know, and all these subcategories of them, which made it look like they knew what they were talking about. Like they right. knew what, what these mental illnesses were and what to do about them. You yeah. Know? So they, they were categories. And it looked impressive because they put all these numbers on them and all that kind of stuff. But they had nothing to do. There, there was nothing about what to do about them or how to, how to cure them. Right. I didn't know at the time. They had no idea what to do as far as how to cure them. Right. You know? um, so, the, you know, this this DSM, it was like their Bible. And uh, I'll tell you about that later. You know, there, here was all these impressive numbers, and, and uh, uh, here here they're being pushed in the universities. Here, you need to study this. This is what, the, these are the mental illnesses. This is what they are. Uh, that, that's not what they are. I mean, it, it, yeah, the experience yeah. of them is very different from what they're writing. And you know, these these papers that they write on these things, you know, the big pharma controls the universities. They, they were taken over back in 1910 before I was even born. And I, I didn't even know about it. So here I entered this educational system that had been taken over by the Rothschilds and the Carnegie Foundation in 1910, and they they mandated through the legislature, the Congress, which no doubt they paid off, that the only the only thing that can be taught in medical schools was pharmacod- pharmacological medicine. Okay, so. That was with the the Flexner Report. Now this didn't benefit the people. This benefited big pharma and psychiatry. It wasn't for the betterment of the people. So this Flexner Report was published in 1910 at the behest of the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller Group, which sponsored it. And it shut down virtually every medical school teaching subjects outside of mainstream pharmacology. So all these electrical therapies that were coming out at the time, naturopathy, all these different therapies that were emerging at the time, they completely shut those down and made them illegal to teach in the universities. So only a few medical schools survived like John Hopkins and McGill and a handful of others. So if you didn't teach pharmacology, they would not allow you to license doctors or psychiatrists. So here they were, they took control of the medical system. Any doctor who practiced anything but pharmacology was threatened with the loss of their license. And that included mm-hmm. naturopathy, the electrical, Tesla's violet ray, electrical treatments, uh, you know, all that stuff, they just knocked it out. So, you know, so when I got into the state hospital, everybody was brainwashed by the DSM and by the medical schools into believing that the voices these schizophrenics were hearing were just pure hallucinations. That's all there was to it. These people were crazy, they were hallucinating, and they had, if you look back in history, they had all these reasons why these people were crazy. They started out with blaming mothers you know, the mothers did something to them. They beat them. They raised them wrong. They, uh, they did something. It's the mother's fault. But that was observable. You know, and the mothers are going, hey, we didn't do anything. I mean, this, this you know, there's lots of normal mothers that, you know,
0: yeah.
1: we didn't do anything. You know? So that was, the mothers go, we're in it. We didn't do it. So what they did is they moved it up into the area of genetics. Okay. So who can, who can now unverify that? It's a very right. small body of people, so they said, "Oh, schizophrenia is now due to genetics. There's a genetic abnormality; it, it's it's in the genes." You know, mm-hmm. and they got away with that for what more than a decade. You know, saying, "Oh, it's genetic. Who's going to check on that?" The right. regular guys on the front line, like myself and psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors, they don't have the genetics labs to tech anything like that. Right. You know, and the, even the universities, for the most part. They're not they looking kind of, into that kind of stuff. Yeah, they kind of do the same
0: thing with anxiety and depression, too. It's yep, exactly it's the a same brain
1: thing. brain abnormality.
0: It's genetics. It's childhood trauma. And they love that childhood trauma narrative. So well, there's, much, su- there's
1: something to that. But this, the, the second yeah. one with the genetics, there were some honest geneticists that looked into it and said, we can't find anything. Yeah. You know, so that blew them out of the water. You know, and they still pushed it, they still they had to look like they knew what caused these mental illnesses. And they have no idea. None. Yeah. You know? Now trauma is is a big part of it. But they're just yeah. coming to that conclusion. So when the genetic thing failed, they needed something else that couldn't be verified by the average guy, you know, or the average clinician. You know? So Eli Lilly came out with it in like the nineteen seventies when they produced Prozac. They said, oh, well, you know, these antidepressants have some kind of chemical effect on the body, and they appear to be doing something, so it must be a chemical imbalance. Mm. So they started pushing this chemical imbalance theory. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, oh, yeah, all these mental illnesses are doing due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. But, yeah. you know, on the front lines, I was watching what the psychiatrists were doing. I was working next to them all the time. I was always working with them. I never saw them give any kind of test to test what the, the baseline of these chemicals were in the brain. You know, so how do they know what's out of balance? You know, There's like, what, 23 neurotransmitters in the brain? How do they know which ones are out of balance or by how much if they don't have some kind of test or lab work or something to figure that out? They never gave any kind of test before they started prescribing their drugs. And I'm like, yeah. wait, wait wait, a minute, that doesn't make sense. So I started asking them about it. I said, well, if it's a chemical imbalance, how do you know what you're treating? You know, if, if you're not given any tests, you're not given any lab work, how, how do you know what's out of balance or by how much? And their response was, oh, the, pharmacolo- the pharmacology companies have, have figured that out for us. You know, yeah. these, 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 these chemicals balance these things. And it was like they were trusting big pharma, which is like letting the fox loose in the hen house. Yeah. You know, those, those people are not to be trusted. <laughs> not at all. So here they were trusting them to be giving them valid information. They, they didn't know what was out of balance. They didn't know how much it was out of balance. Matter of fact, they don't even know what the balance of the brain should be. the chemical balance of the brain should be and neither does the pharmacology companies they don't know they it was completely made up this whole thing was a sham and it came up when other you know biochemists came up and said we don't see any chemical imbalance in the brains between schizophrenics and uh uh, non-schizophrenics so they blew that out of the water but the drug companies are still pushing it you see in their advertisements right now, even though it's been disproved years ago, they're still pushing that, and they're still teaching it in the universities, even though it's been disproved, but it makes the pharmacology companies a lot of money, and yeah. it makes psychiatrists a lot of money, and they don't want to change things to, to fit the truth. Yeah. So yeah. what really killed them is, you know, with the schizophrenics, these phenothiazines were discovered, They said they charge an arm and a leg for these these antipsychotic drugs. You know, on average, it probably costs approaching $1,000 a month to keep somebody sane on these regimens of antipsychotics they're given. Now to look at the markup that they're getting on that, you can go across the border into Mexico, 60 miles from here, and you can get the same drugs made by the same companies with a Spanish label for seventy-five dollars a month, and these guys are charging close to eight hundred dollars a month for the same drugs. So that's that's that. It's a, it's a scam that is just unbelievable. And yeah. Here in the U.S., I mean, oh, well, well, the U the U.S. people can afford it, so we're going to gouge them more. You know, and hmm. it, they would if they weren't making a profit at seventy-five dollars a month for all over there in Mexico, they wouldn't be doing it. If they weren't making a profit, they wouldn't be doing it. So they're making a profit at $75 and they're charging U.S. citizens around $800, you know, mm. for, for the drugs. And, the, and, the, and over there, you go to the psychiatrist once, he gives you the diagnosis, he gives you a prescription, then you don't need a prescription to go back. Here, in the U.S., you gotta keep going back every few months to get another prescription. Yeah. So they got you by the butt. They're just, just they're just choking you to death over here, you know? mm. and uh, it's, it, it's, it's a scam. You know? So, so here they are saying the voices are hallucinations, and nobody's questioning that. You know, nobody's asking these people what are the voices saying. You now, what are they? So I, st- I started asking them. And uh, it was like, it took a while to learn how to talk to them because they don't want to tell you anything about the voices because if they complain too much about the voices, the psychiatrists would double their medications and knock them out. They'd be walking around like living zombies, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like these these medications for the most part do not get rid of the voices. The voices are energetic entities. So it's like getting a magnet and, and pouring Thorazine on the magnetic field and saying, oh yeah, we're, uh, we're treating the symptoms of, of magnetism. It, it doesn't touch the voices. It, it, what it is, they're major tranquilizers. They calm the person down because the voices get them upset. The voices are nasty. They're very nasty. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're negative entities. They try to pull a person down to a, a very low vibration. And they're also parasites. Because after they attack the person, their energy levels drop to nothing. Now, they're not aware of that unless you bring it up to them. They just think they feel bad, but there's a one-to-one correspondence between being attacked by these voices and their energy levels dropping to zero. Yeah, you know, and I thought that was due to how nasty the voices were. If you had voices screaming at you telling you you're ugly you're stupid you're no good and nobody likes you people are plotting against you uh the the, the cops are going to come and drag you away they're going to lock you up i mean all the, all this stuff the, the most awful yeah. stuff you can imagine is what these things say
0: i felt it i felt it jerry i've had experiences with that stuff I earlier did. on yeah that's what got me into um the coaching industry and and stuff like that initially i I wanted to study psychology when i was at university um when things didn't work out with that because (laughs) the guy the the lecturer turned out to be a pedophile and they just kicked him out of the university and we had no more classes for the rest of the year so we all just kind of had to read our textbooks and try you know, hope that we would pass the exam and stuff like that. So that didn't really go to plan for me. And I dropped out of university anyway because I was a musician at the time and I I wanted to do that as a career mainly. And that whole time I, I was starting to deal with anxiety, the kind where you get those voices that say things that aren't true. And yes. you, you liars. Want to numb them, yeah, you want to numb them with alcohol, and that's what and they want. drugs, yeah, and they want you to do more and more drugs, and that's and right I, I started to catch on that all they were doing was getting me to go on benders for like two or three days, drinking and drugging, and yeah. then I would eventually have to crash, yep. and, and I'd get a day or two of peace,
1: and then they would come back, and the cycle would start all over again, yep. Yep. and and, um, and then they, with the alcohol you get that uh, withdrawal effect so you feel miserable to start with and that's where they want you uh, to feel they want you to feel yeah. miserable these yeah. things they are entities you know they're not hallucinations like the the psychiatric mafia says they are
0: yeah you know? and, and um what I can add to that for to show people that this is real is that when I got into meditation and stuff like that, that was when I really made a de- decision to face myself. Because I thought that, you know, we have these thoughts and we're responsible for every single thought that comes into our head. And it's because of all these different things that they tell us is our responsibility. And when I started poking around, I guess you could say in my own subconscious, by meditating for long periods of time, they would show themselves. And I realized that. There, these things were attached to me. I began to be able to see using my own internal perception that these things were actually bound to my energetic body. It's it's difficult to describe, but I could see that, and I had to command them to leave, and they didn't want to go. Yes, they did not want to go. They're, and they're feeding give... off you yeah and i had to really like level with them and and start doing all kinds of different things because as you know they don't like anything positive they don't like gratitude they don't like um the bible they don't like all those kinds of things i remember one day i just called my mom and she was like what do you want i'm like i need you to send me as many bibles as you can find right now (laughs) like all kinds something that she's like what's going on she's like i'll tell you i'll tell i'm like i'll tell you later I'm working on something I'm researching something. She's like, okay, this is strange. So a box of Bible shows up at my door and you know, these things freaked out. But what they would do prior to that years before that is I realized that anytime I got any kind of success in music, anytime I got money in my hand, anytime I got a girlfriend, anything, they would try to mess yeah. that up. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. And they're, they're consummate liars, you know? So, you know, we're taught from the time we're kids that any, thought that comes into your mind belongs to you. That's far from true. Mm -hmm. These things insert thoughts into your mind, your thought stream, and they sound Mm -hmm. just like your own, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're negative, you know, they're Mm -hmm. downers. So any negative thought that comes into your mind about yourself or anybody else comes from them,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and and the, the schizophrenics were just as curious as I was about what they were you know the schizophrenics i was working with so uh, you know th- the first thing that i had to overcome was you know, these voices aren't word salad they're they're not just babbling nonsense i mean they're coherent they're evil they they say bad things they drag people down um and and once once i got some of the schizophrenics to trust me i saw that they were running patterns and just like you said there there was something came to me and i remember one guy said when i repeat the 23rd psalm the voices react like they're thrown onto a hot frying pan that's how much they hate it yeah you know? yeah and when one of them would tell me something like that i wouldn't just take his word for it the state hospital was full of schizophrenics and so I would ask all the rest of them on my caseload, "Hey, if you say the twenty-third Psalm, what happens?" You know, and it verified it. They hated the twenty-third Psalm. Why would a hallucination hate the twenty-third Psalm? Why yeah. would the hallucination hate preachers? Why would they hate Bibles? Why would they hate them? Uh, hallucination hate these people going to church. Yeah, you know, a hallucination wouldn't. You know, but yet. Yeah. This whole hospital with hundreds of staff were all brainwashed by the educational system into believing that these voices were hallucinations based on nothing other than them mm. saying so. Yeah, you know. So psychiatry and, and big pharma gets up and they they just declare the voices are hallucinations because we said so. Well, do you mm. have any? You you have any? Uh, yeah, they look like hallucinations because they don't make sense. But you haven't studied them either. If you studied them, they'd make sense. You know You haven't done a single research or anything on them. You didn't research them at all. You just yeah. you just declared they were hallucinations, and now you're teaching that to the public. Yeah. It's bullcrap. It's total bullcrap. And they're doing it right now, they're doing it today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? yeah. These things aren't hallucinations. They're very dangerous, and they, they, they're, they're, they're energetic entities. Mm -hmm. you know so mental illness is an energetic illness you're we're spiritual we're spiritual Mm -hmm. entities we're Mm -hmm. affected by spiritual forces you know these bodies are just like cars that you drive around but you take the spirit out of the body for any length of time Mm -hmm. and the body dies and rots you're not your body right you know and and these guys psychology and psychiatry refuse to look at anything spiritual. So they're not going to get to the answers because yeah. you have to you have to have a spiritual bent to, to see it. And yeah. Emanuel Swedenborg some 300 years ago he had uh, access yeah. to heaven and hell and he would come back and he'd write about it and where we first discovered these things had a a one-to-one correlation between evil spirits was a a clinical psychologist named uh, wilson van dusen in california wrote a book called the presence of other worlds and he wrote about what swedenborg was saying about these evil spirits and he saw he worked in a state in a state hospital also he saw that what swedenborg was saying about the evil spirits in hell matched exactly what the voices that his patients were telling him they were saying. So there was a one-to-one correspondence. So I started reading Swedenborg also and saw the same thing. They matched up exactly. What my patients were telling me about the voices matched exactly what Manuel Swedenborg was saying that evil spirits said to him in the interviews yeah. he had with them. So, yeah. um,
0: yeah, you're right. I first read Emanuel Swedenborg about 10 years ago. It was when I was still working on stuff, trying to figure out what was going on, and it blew my mind. I mean, there was even more occult stuff, like C.W. Leadbeater and stuff that he was talking about, all thinking is psychic activity. Like, where have you really um, been getting your thoughts from
1: all yeah. along? And I was to, like, to, See, that's, that's something that Psychology and psychiatry don't address where do thoughts come from, and they're not going to figure out mental illness until they figure that out, and they're nowhere near it. They don't yeah. come from the person. Your brain is like a radio receiver. You know, you tune it to the frequency that you let it go to. I mean, you, you're in control of that frequency, so you you're the one who pays attention to those thoughts. You, you, you know, it's like the the Indians that says, you know, you've got two wolves, a good one and a bad one. The one you feed is the one that will grow. Yeah, true. You know? So if you start paying attention to the bad thoughts and you realize, you know, you think they're coming from you and you think they are you, you're sunk. Yeah. Those thoughts don't come from you.
0: Yeah. I remember when I first started coaching and stuff like that, well, I figured out that was a scam too (laughs) because it's kind of like your journey. You figured out all this stuff by comparing it to what was happening in real life. And I got all excited. I was like, yay, I'm going to help people. And, um, like the scripts and the protocols and things that they gave you in the coaching school just didn't actually help anybody figure out anything it didn't you know it didn't even really help them define a vision you know and so i started to question that and i started diving back into psychology and stuff like that and i decided to go take classes and things and that was the same deal like it was just information on repeat this is what we know this is what you're supposed to say it's childhood trauma it's brain problems it's all this stuff and that didn't do anything to help me figure out how to help the right. people based on what they were right. saying yeah, and so it how? to upset me. Yeah, how yeah. do you
1: get the trauma out? You know, they, yeah, they, they exactly. don't they don't deal with that. You know, it's, see, and, and yeah. this MACE energy system that I was talking to you about does. Yeah. You know, it's a so, so you know the the, the um, when I started asking the patients at the state hospital about the voices, what they were saying, how they behaved, what they were doing. When, when one of them reported that to a psychiatrist, I ended up in that guy's office on the red carpet being told you will not ask these patients what the voices are saying. The voices are hallucinations, and when you're asking questions about them, you're reinforcing the hallucinations and you're making them worse. I don't wanna hear you asking que- you know patients about their voices ever again. That mm. happened twice. Mm. So, so they don't wanna even know. They think, they think they know, they don't know, they don't know crap. Yeah. So, so I had to be very careful about asking the patients about their voices. Um, Where I really could get away with it was, you know, several years later when I got the job in the psychology department of the, of the state prison and the state prison is full with, it's full of psychotics. It's, it's full of schizophrenics. You know, the, they can't survive on the streets. They have closed down all the state hospitals in the U.S. Um, they, and then they, they started defunding the mental health centers. So, I mean, where's these people going to go? They can't they can't hold jobs. So they're out. Mm-hmm. They're homeless. They're walking on the streets. They're committing crimes because they they can't function. You know? So they get thrown into prison. They get more and more violent, and they they get thrown in prison. So I had a. An unending population there, too. And what I did is formed a group and made a deal with them. I said, if you tell me what the voices are telling you in real time, I'll do everything I can to help you out. You know, So I always had a group of prisoners who were willing to tell me what the voices were saying. And that's where I started seeing that they were running more patterns than what I saw when I was working at the state hospital. So what I saw at the state hospital is they were consistently negative. You know, what held them on such a consistently negative path? They were always negative. They're consistently negative. They were repeatedly negative. They didn't ever diverge and, and go random and sometimes positive, sometimes negative, sometimes mediocre. No, they were always negative. What held them on that path? Why were they always negative? What force held them on a consistently negative path where they didn't just go random? Something did that. I didn't know what it was, but something was holding them on that path. And the second one, like we talked about, where they, they hated the Bible, they hated preachers, they hated the 23rd Psalm, they hated anything to do with Christianity or any religion whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so um, I learned a whole lot when I was talking to these people and, and uh, what the voices were telling them in real time. So the voices would butt in on our conversations. And uh, there was one, I mean, I, I heard some incredible stories. There was there was one prisoner who, um, he was using a lot of, uh, what was it, it was cocaine. And he, he already had a huge criminal record. And uh, he was psychotic, he was hearing voices. And the voices told him one day, they said, uh, hey, we know where there's a, he was in San Diego, California. And the voices said, hey, we know where there's a, a huge, sesame your pot field in Oregon, you know, take all your money, you know, the guy had like 250 bucks or something like that and bring two burlap sacks and we'll show you where it is. So he believed them, he trusted them and he took off. He took all this money, he took two burlap sacks. he, He went turn by turn where the voices told him to turn and he ended up in Oregon at the base of this mountain after going down like a 23 mile dirt road, and he stops the car and he goes, Okay, I'm, I'm against the mountain. I can't go any further. What do I do? The voices said, There's a path off to your left. Get your burlap sacks and get your, your machete and follow that path. So about uh, three hours later, he ran into this giant sesame pot field, just like the voices said. So he cut them down. He filled up his two big bags of uh, burlap bags. And uh, he said, okay, what do I do now? And the voices said, we know where there's a park where you can sell it. So he went to that park, and he was making a fortune selling, you know, marijuana in that park. So he bought himself all the prostitutes he could handle. He bought himself all the, all the liquor he could drink. He bought himself all the cocaine he could, he could get his hands on. And uh, now this sounded a little fishy to me when he told me he said the voices were fishermen they wanted to go fishing so he went fishing in the columbia river and he said he was the only one catching anything he said the voices told him where to throw the hook how long to leave it there you know when to move and he was the only one he said he was the only one catching fish on the columbia river that day so there was that there was there was one prisoner who told me uh, that they told him which houses to rob They told him if the person, if the occupants of the house were up. They told him where to hide. Um, They would, would, uh, he said he he made a fortune robbing houses that the voices told him which ones to rob. And I said, well, you know, the voices are so cool. What are you doing here in prison? You know, why why are you here? He said, I got greedy and I robbed the house. They told me not to rob because I knew there was a lot of loot in there. And that's where they caught me. So it was thing after thing. I mean, the meth addicts would say, when I ran out of meth, the voices would tell me where to go and when to be there to get more meth. These weren't hallucinations. Mm. So by the time I was done working in the prison, there were like 23 patterns that these voices were running. So since they're energetic, you know, you can't see them, you know. Regular people can't hear them. So like a magnetic field, you can't see a magnetic field. I mean, it's pure energy. The only reason you can find one is like if you get uh, uh, maybe iron filings and you put a magnet to it, then the iron filings will reflect the magnetic field. You'll see what it looks like in the iron filings, but you can't see or feel or smell or touch the magnetic field itself. It's completely invisible. Right. Mm-hmm. The voices are the same way. Okay, the voices are energetic. They're energy also. You can The regular person can't see them. They can't feel them. They can't smell them. That they, they're they're undetectable, except yeah. by the effect or the patterns they run and the effect they have on those patterns. All right. So here's here's the psychiatric mafia and big pharma moving any any investigation of the voices into areas where you can't investigate. Well, anybody who's working with schizophrenics can see these patterns. And if they're running patterns, they can't be hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Hallucinations are random. And these are basically the patterns they run. Anybody who's working with, with schizophrenics can see these for themselves. They don't have to have any, you know, biochemistry lab. They don't have to have a genetics lab. These patterns reflect what the voices are and how they operate. They're consistently negative. They're always negative. They always say negative stuff. They're anti-religious. They foster and create negative emotion. They, they feed off of negative emotion. You know, they can't create it themselves, so they have to create it in us, and then they feed off it. Then they energetically drain those victims they get louder after sunset they get loudest between three and four in the morning you can check all these facts out by yourself you can see them yourself if you work with schizophrenics or you're hearing voices they get louder when ignored they refuse to be ignored you know and the psychiatrists are saying oh yeah they're hallucinations just ignore them you know i remember i asked the first patient uh, i saw a psychiatrist tell that to i brought him back two weeks later and i said Well, the psychiatrist told you to uh, ignore your hallucinations. How's that working for you? He goes, it's not working at all. They get worse when I try to ignore them. And then I asked a whole bunch of other psychotic patients, you know, if you try to ignore your voices, what happens? They all said they get louder. It doesn't work that way. It shows you how much psychiatry knows about the voices. They foster self-destructive behavior. Like you were saying, you have money, they take it. You know, mm-hmm. you they, they spend it on drugs. They, they, they urge you into self-destructive behavior. They, they basically hate the human race. They foster mm-hmm. isolation. They don't want you to have any friends. They don't want you to have any family. They don't want you to, to associate with anybody. They want you locked up in your room, listening to their garbage all the time, all day. They don't want you to have anything to do with anybody else. That's the worst thing you can do if you're hearing voices, to, is to seal yourself off in your room from the rest of the human race. And they demand the attention of their victims. They consistently maneuver for more control over their victims. They want more and more control. Uh, they will gaslight you. They'll, I, I remember one, one patient uh, where they he was so confused, they told him that he had murdered somebody and he didn't know whether he had or not. So he's like, well, maybe I should, I turn myself into the police. Well, if I turn myself into the police, if I did murder somebody, I'm going to prison. If I didn't murder somebody, they're gonna lock me up in a, in a mental institution. So, so they, they had him in a catch 22. So every time the police showed up anywhere, you go, they're looking for me, they're looking for me. So they had him trapped. They, they were gaslighting him in, in this, this false belief that we're, that we're allowing them to drain his energy consistently. They manipulate perception in the worst way possible, so you know, if you're walking down the street and some guys start laughing and down the street somewhere, they'll say they're laughing at you. They have complete access to the schizophrenic's memory. They can pull up every rotten thing you've ever done. The memories are energetic, these voices are energetic, they operate in the energy universe, as John Mace would say. There is no time, there is no, no um, matter uh, there is no space there. <clears throat> so no matter where you go, they can follow you. you can go underwater, they can follow you there. Hmm.
0: You know,
1: there is no time, there is no matter. there's no space where they live. So they can they can go into your mind which is energetic. I mean all of your memories are energetic and they can pull up every rotten thing you've ever done and they can rub it in your face until they turn your emotional state negative, and then they will start sucking on that energy. They demand the victim not tell anybody about them. They don't want anybody to know that you have them. And they, they'll tell you, I mean, you tell anybody about us, they'll think you're nuts and they'll lock you up. You know, um, they're consummate liars. They lie about everything. You can't trust anything they say. You can't make any deals with them. They won't, They won't keep any of their bargains. Uh, virtually everything they say is a lie. They consistently steer their victim away from anything that might create joy or pleasure. They don't want you happy. They don't want you feeling joy. They don't want you feeling pleasure. They'll they'll keep you away from that kind of stuff. You know? You'll see schizophrenics aren't very, very sociable. They're not very friendly. You don't see them ever laugh, unless they're laughing at something the voices said. Uh, the voices can manipulate feeling without, without speaking. So they can impact your energy field. They can short-circuit reason. They'll move in if you're bored. That's the worst thing you can do if you're schizophrenic is let yourself get bored. They'll just move in there and they'll just take that space. They try to pass themselves off as thoughts that belong to you. So they'll put that thought in your thought stream and they'll make you think... That it's your thought, and in fact, it sounds like the, the thousands of thoughts that go through your head every day. But it just doesn't match what you what you know to be you. They they will get you to selectively forget things. So if you know if I give a client a list of things to do to fight the voices, if they don't write them down. They won't remember 90% of them by the time we're done talking. They destroy you any positive vestige of self-concept you have. Uh, they tell, they attempt to pull the victim away from consensual reality into this crazy reality of theirs. They use confusion as a means of suggesting, uh, of installing negative suggestion. So they'll get you real confused and then they'll suggest a, a, a solution that'll be a bad solution. Um, their aversion to anything positive or beautiful they're adverse to. Um, Any attempt to inform the schizophrenic that they're energetic parasites will trigger them. That's the last thing they want their victims to know, that they're sucking their energy and that they're parasites. So that is what they are. That is how they operate. They're not hallucinations. If they run these patterns, they can't be hallucinations. And anybody who works with schizophrenics, psychologists, psychiatrists, you'll see they run these patterns. You can see it for yourself. And if they're running patterns, they can't be hallucinations.
0: I'm just here nodding my head in agreement because uh, I wish that I could have found you to ask you questions eight years ago. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story when i was in my uh second year of coaching and stuff i was still finding out exactly how unprepared i was for dealing with any of this um i had a client who i could tell that she was just energetically off like something was wrong with her and she tells me she's an addict she discloses that She uses meth, cocaine, fentanyl, heroin, battery acid, you name it, whatever it is that she could find to get a high. And she described to me the experience, just about everything that she could about how she would end up feeling absolutely compelled to just go use and, um, she would say that, to me that she would even be in a good mood sometimes and these urges would just appear out of the clear blue, completely take over. Yeah, they and weren't The next hurt. thing she knows, she would wake up in a crack den somewhere or in a hospital bed, strapped to the bed and full of tubes because she would overdosed. And I I was able to work with her a little bit. My, my first question for her was, why, why are you coming to meet hey, a coach? She was like, because psychology has failed me. Because I've tried going to psychiatrists and stuff like that all they've done is numb me out with these medications that didn't make me feel good and nothing's changed she's like you're my last hope yeah and i'm thinking to myself "Shit."
1: they cure cure absolutely nothing those medicines they give you cure nothing they're very expensive and and they do damage to your brain
0: Mm -hmm. mm-hmm i've seen i've seen that a lot in this particular um, incident it it happened twice with a different person so what happened was i was able to get her to kind of define some kind of a vision for herself and to get her to stop doing certain things and bring in better habits and things but eventually after a couple of months or so she would just go self-sabotage again she would just go right back out and use and it would be these voices that she would describe these impulses that she would describe and what happened was one day she showed me some of the artwork that she was making when she would hole up and get high and what she would do is that she would do the same thing that I did when I was having troubles years before she would just hole up in a room listening to her favorite music in my case I would just be playing my guitar writing songs voices would tell me song lyrics and what to play and things like that and I would I would do it but she would be listening to her favorite bands and stuff and she would just draw so she started showing me these drawings and she would be sketching the entities she would be sketching the faces of the entities so the next year after that i experienced the same thing again with a different client another addict that she disclosed she worked at a strip club she described the actual voices that were talking to her that were some were in her own voice and some were not in her own voice. And, um, she said they would have like arguments between each other and things like that, which was scary at best. Um, she said that it was, she said that it, she knew it was stealing her life force. She would keep saying that over and over all the time. She was, I know they're taking everything from me. I know that it's, it's stealing my life force. They, they won't let me see my son because she had a little kid and like her parents got custody over the kid and stuff like that. Uh, but it was the exact same scenario as the first person a year apart loved to sketch in the notebook when she got high and it was the same entity so... I knew that a part of my connection, how I got exposed and how these entities were attached to me was through the music I was playing. So I was playing hard rock and stuff, like modern hard rock. So for anybody that's listening that would know these bands, the the bands that were on her playlist were Ice Nine Kills, uh, Papa Roach, Linkin Park, Three Days Grace, Motionless and White, Black Veil Brides. These are just some of the things that they would. Say to me, and I, I'm saying these titles for people. If you listen to this kind of music, stop right now. Yes, yes, um, I agree
1: fully. Totally.
0: Yeah, and so on the the second client's playlist, it was the same artist but then some more that were also in like electronic dance music, R and B, hip hop, pop genres. But what really got me paying full attention was that they both would tell me one song in particular and it's Animal I Have Become by Three Days Grace. And I used to listen to that song a lot too. I actually had to cover that song a few times when I was playing. And I, and something about that just was really eerie to me that they would say the exact same songs. And um, that's where I started doing my digging further into the subject because I knew that it was not just a coincidence. I knew I had experienced that. I knew I had experiences of playing on stage and feeling like something would just come over me, come and touch my, the top of my head, and I would not remember how I played, what I played. People would say it was really great the next day, I did this and that. And I'd be like, I don't remember any of that. It was like I had a hangover just from performing. I, complete memory wipe. And that things like that bothered me. So I just kind of dug into the dark side of the music industry and Uh, what i can say is i don't think that many of these artists are actually aware of what's happening but i can tell you that there is such a thing as masonic musicology and it has a lot to do with at least one member of the group or the artist or some producer being a high level initiate or some involved in some kind of order or another and they figured out how to bring these entities through and, and they manipulate humanity through their mind their body their emotion you know hijack them physically and spiritually so I see a lot of that is going on um, where television is concerned too, like you yeah. know or horror movies
1: and things like that well if you look at these these patterns that I just read you there's a one-to-one correspondence between what the news is telling us right now constantly and exactly that those those same patterns yeah. You know, constantly negative, anti-religious. I mean, all the way down the line, one after another.
0: Yeah. And to a certain extent, too, it sounds a lot like the psychiatrists and the psychologists and the doctors that are prescribing the medication just mindlessly. And they're. it's either that they're so brainwashed or they themselves are succumbing to some kind of consciousness hijacking where they're like, I guess insistent that this is the only thing that there is. And you have to do this. Right. Or else, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll tell
1: patients, they'll, they'll tell them, you know, schizophrenia is a lifetime sentence. That's it. you know, you're, you're going to be schizophrenic for the rest of your life. The only thing you could do is take our toxic medications. Hmm. And when they, when they've, when honest researchers found out how toxic they were in autopsies term. Psych patients who had been taking these medicines for years, their brains were shrunk like walnuts. And mm-hmm. when they when they see that the the pharmaceutical industry also controls the journals, and the educational stuff, you know, so they don't want that kind of stuff coming out. Mm-hmm. So they'll get people not to publish certain things, and they'll get them to publish things that, you know, foster their their drugs, but. These honest guys, they come out and they publish that. And the, the psychiatrists and big pharma are like, oh no, no, it's not our drugs. It's not our drugs, it's the schizophrenia that's doing that. You know, which they don't mm. even know what it is, but, you know. And uh, so, yeah. so uh, what the lab guys started doing is, is feeding these drugs to uh, monkeys and rats. And they found out that their brain shrunk also. These are some mm. of the most dangerous drugs used in medicine today. And the psychiatrist, i have never seen a psychiatrist tell a patient—and—and and I've been around a lot of them. How dangerous these drugs actually are! They just mm. tell them, "Oh, it'll—it'll—it'll it'll, it'll make you sleepy. It'll calm you down. It'll—you know—you might get sexual dysfunction. Your mouth will dry out. Da, 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 you know these common, obvious symptoms. But they don't tell them how dangerous these drugs are, that it rots out your brain, that it rots out your peripheral nervous system, that it'll cause akinesia, that it'll it'll cause nerve dysfunction, it'll it'll cause permanent neurological damage with long-term use. They don't Mm -hmm. even mention that. I've never seen them mention that to a patient, ever.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. It's pretty dark and uh, they seem to even outside of schizophrenia they seem to get people to want to own their dysfunction where they get them to identify with whatever is supposedly ailing them so they'll say my oh, anxiety yeah. you're a, you're schizophrenic
1: depression. you're a neurotic you're a psychotic you know mm. so they label the person by this dysfunction and, yeah, it's, and... it's it's uh it's devastating you know, it's yeah. it's um, you know, and and they're like the head guys that treat it. You know, so the these patterns. You know, when I was in the prison, I started like, okay, what what do you what would happen if I started messing around with these patterns and started trying to disrupt them? Okay, well, the voices didn't like that very much. You know. So I was trying all these different ways to disrupt them, and then one after one another, these these prisoners that I had in the groups that were reporting to me, they'd come in. They go, the voices are really getting pissed at you. They don't like what you're doing. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, tough beans. Tell them to go stick their head in the toilet. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, so there was an, there was a bunch of them. It wasn't just one. They'd come in at different times. They didn't even know each other for the most part. You know, because I was meeting with them individually. And, uh, you know, then one day one of them comes in and he's leaving He's leaving my office. He turns around and he goes, you know what you're doing is dangerous, don't you? And I just looked at him, I'm like, I never thought about that. You know, I, I'm like, well, they're stuck in your head. They're not, they're not in my head, they're stuck in you. That, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, but he just turns around and walks off. And I'm like, what was that all about? And, a warning. Um, yeah, it was a warning. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a fair warning, but I ignored it. You know, I'm like, well, like I said, they're stuck in your head. They're not, they're not they can't get me. And uh, so then that same guy a few weeks later knocks on my door in the prison psychology department and he goes, the voices want to talk to you. And I'm like, they want to talk to me personally? That hadn't ever happened before. It was always, the conversation would go from the voices to the patient, the patient would tell me what the voices said, and then I'd respond through the patient to the voices. And so there was, the voice, the patient was always the intermediary. Now they wanted to talk to me personally. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> come on in, what do they have to say? So he sat down, and these, these words came out of his mouth, I'll never forget them, said, so, you have no right to interfere with our way of life. And, mm. you know, boom. And my denial system was already on the rocks. I didn't want to believe mm. that these things were entities. You know, I, mm. I was going, oh, something's wrong with their subconscious mind or something like that. I mean, there must be some other explanation. They, they can't be entities. You know, it's like uh, I didn't want to believe it. I just didn't want to believe it. And I denied it. All the evidence that I'd collected, where anybody else probably were not Yeah, they're entities. No, no, I, I was pushing it all out. I didn't want to. I didn't want to see it. When when he when they said that, it was like a boom. It's like my denial system just blew blew apart and collapsed. And then the the inmate said, "That wasn't me. That was them." I didn't say that. That came from them. And mm-hmm. I said. You sure you're not shitting me you go, no honest to god i'm not <laughs> and it would have been dangerous to kind of mess with you know with the psychologists in the prison they they have a lot more power than the inmates do you know so it would have been foolish for him to kind of play with me that way and um you know i said well um tell them this and he said i don't have to tell them anything they can hear you mm-hmm. And uh, he said, they can also see you. And that was like news to me, too. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> it just blew my blew me away. I mean, I was in shock. Yeah. So um, it, it took me a while to, to recover from that because I, I didn't know where I was going. I, I had no cognitive map, you know, that where's this all going, what, where's it leading, what's happening, what are these things, how dangerous are they? Um, you know, what can they do and what can't they do? I, I, had, I, I had no idea and, and I couldn't talk to anybody. You know, I couldn't tell anybody what was happening to me and what I was seeing because they wouldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't go to any of the other psych staff and go, hey man, uh, the voices are giving me these warnings. And I'm like, yeah, no. So I had to keep it all to myself. And I couldn't tell my wife because she's going, what are you doing picking the heads of psychotics anyway? These are criminally insane people. What are you doing? You know, so she was no help. (laughs) So I couldn't talk to her. So I had to keep it all to myself. The only people who understood were the psychotics themselves. They Mm -hmm. understood. I could talk to them about these things, but I couldn't talk to anybody else about it. So, you know... The next thing that came up was I didn't, that that wasn't enough to stop me, It, it shocked me. I then realized that they were separate entities, but I didn't know how dangerous they were. I didn't know what they could do and what they couldn't do to me, I knew what they could do to them because these people were committing suicide all the time. They were doing all these weird stuff, they were stabbing themselves, they were shooting themselves, they were overdosing because of the voices. So I knew what they could do to them I didn't know what they could do to me. And I didn't want to find out. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, after recuperating from that, you know, you know, you have no right to interfere with our way of life, plural. And this was a single prisoner who was telling me this. So it wasn't him mm-hmm. speaking. You know. So I continued to experiment and I continued to, you know, what what effect did this have on them? What effect does that have on them? What if they did this? What you know, and and they were getting pissed. So the same guy. Um. I I, I was reading this book by a, a South American shaman where he was talking about these things being energetic parasites. You know, so I I brought that book into the prison and I brought this guy back in, the one who kind of gave me the warning. And I said, uh, hey, I'd like your opinion on what this shaman is saying about what appears to be the voices. Mm -hmm. And I started reading that paragraph to him. And I look up at him and he looks like a zombie. He's just sitting there just staring at me with this zombie blank look. And it it was like creeping me out, you know? once I hit the part of the voices being energetic parasites, that's when he turned into a zombie. And I'm mm. looking at him and all of a sudden I hear this, this crackling behind my head, like, like electricity, it sounded just like an arc welder. It was like, crack, 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 crack. I'm like, what the frick is going on? And then it starts going up my office wall to the right. You know, crack, crack, just like an arc welder. I didn't smell anything, I didn't see anything, but I could hear it moving. And I turned to him and I said, Do "You hear that?" And he's just staring at me with this zombie-like stare, you know, just like he's in another planet, or he's just, just, just blankly staring at me. I'm like, "What the frick is it's going completely on?" Completely dissociated from it, or whatever. I don't know what he was thinking. Now, I mean, he just looked weird. So, <laughs> I was afraid he was gonna he was gonna attack. So I pushed my chair against the wall and I kind of face him. So if he comes at me, I can kick him back without falling over. And then I put my attention on, the, on this crackling again, and it's crackling all the way up the, left hand, the right-hand wall. And I was afraid to take my attention off of him for any length of time, I'm swinging back and forth between the crackling and watching him. And then it goes over his head so I can watch it there and keep my eye on him too, but I'm not seeing anything. I'm not smelling anything, I'm not feeling anything. And it comes down the left-hand wall and jumps into this Rubbermaid trash can you know, right at my feet, and I look down in there, and there's nothing there, you know, and then it just stops. It just shuts off, and I'd look at him, and he slowly gets up, and he goes, oh, I gotta leave, and shuffles out of the office. <laughs> I'm like, go, get out of here, get, go, you know, it blew my mind. I mean, I canceled all my appointments for the rest of the day, and, and, you know, stayed away from picking in their heads for a while, and, uh, I didn't call him back for like three months. You know, I was terrified. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I couldn't talk to anybody about this stuff. So finally, after about three or four months, I call him back, and he shows up for an appointment, and he looks good. I thought he'd be a wreck. No, he'd look good. And I I started after some small talk. I asked him, uh, hey, uh, remember the last time you were in my office? Uh, Did you hear that crackling? He said, yeah, I heard it, but I, I didn't. I was surprised you did. And I'm like, yeah, I heard it. What was that? He said, that was them. I said, them who? The voices? And he said, yeah, that was them. I said, what were they doing? He said, they were trying to scare you off. I said, they did a damn good job. <laughs> you know, and I said, uh, you know, when you got up and you walked out of my office, you looked really weird. What were they telling you? He said, they were telling me to go get a shank and stick it in your gut. And I was thinking, oh, he wouldn't do that. I've been working with this guy for six months. I had a good relationship with him. He wouldn't do that. So I asked him, well, why didn't you do it? And he said, because I couldn't find one and nobody would give me one. Mm -hmm. And that freaked me out. You know, that was like, what am I messing with here? You know, what am I messing with?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is a phenomenal.
1: So they, occurrence. they, they are not, you know, they, they are not friggin' hallucinations. No,
0: and it goes to show you that they, some of them can really gather some energy on this plane to do things like that. Yeah. To be yeah. stuck to someone and, 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 to, and, and know, to, manifest.
1: And to affect physical reality. I didn't think they could do that. Yeah. But I found out later they could. I mean, some of these guys were showing up in my office with scratches across their back that they said they didn't inflict and no human being inflicted either. It happened in the middle of the night. Stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Being raped. um, You know, stuff like that. So the the voices are energy. They're they're energetic. They can't be gotten rid of with physical drugs. Those drugs only treat symptoms. They don't treat the cause. They don't treat the, the... what's actually happening, you know, mm. they, they, they reduce some of the physical effects and, and that's it, they don't, they cure nothing, they cure absolutely nothing, so, you know, the main control of psychiatry and psychiatric mafia is, is uh, profit and, and control, you know, um, and these, these guys would go off those antipsychotic drugs, they, they, they wouldn't stay on them. And, uh, I'm, I'm like, uh, even at the state hospital, I'm like, why do you keep going off them? If you know, you're going to get crazy and you're going to lose it. Why are you going off your drugs? So I, I, I did a test one day. I got, uh, I went to the DSM and I got paranoid schizophrenia and I, I printed out the pages and made a check sheet out of that. You know, all the symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia, the hallucinations, the, the paranoia, the, the uh, the, the voices, I mean, all the rotten stuff that happens to these poor suckers. And then I would bring them into the office, the ones who stopped taking their meds. And I'd say, why, do you take, why did you stop taking your meds? I asked them for years before that, why'd you stop? And they go, well, because of the side effects of the drugs. And they are awful. You know, they are toxic. These drugs are toxic. They have awful side effects. So I, I would have the patient write down all the side effects they experienced but with a particular drug they were taking because they all didn't have the same uh, side effects and uh, they all didn't have the same number of them. So that had to be individualized. So they wrote down all the side effects that they experienced and then I would give them this check sheet with all the bad symptoms from paranoid schizophrenia. I'd have them check the, the, the ones they felt, you know, the paranoia, the the voices, the, you know, the not sleeping, the, you know, all, all those symptoms. And then I'd hand them both back to them, and I'd say, which one is worse, the, the side effects or, or being psychotic? And every single one of them said being psychotic was worse than taking the medicines. So I'd say, well, then why did you stop taking your medicines? Because virtually all of them at some point stopped taking them. And they would say, I don't know. That was their answer. I don't know.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: know, So after the seventh year, there was this one girl, if if they stopped taking their meds three times, because at that time we didn't know, we didn't know anything to do about the voices other than um, give them drugs. And I didn't know. I was just trying to figure out what they were back then. I didn't know what they were either, other than that they didn't like the Bible. They didn't like preachers. They were any religious and that they were negative, you know, and that they told these people bad things. And so I suspected whatever they were, they weren't good, but I didn't know any details about them. It, it took me seven years to just get that far. Um, so there was this one girl who had stopped taking her, her drugs three times. She was about to get thrown out of the psych rehab program. And her mother calls me and said, please don't do that, I can't deal with her at home. At home. Uh, she, she gets crazy, she needs treatment. She said, I'll come up there and, and I'll talk to her, we'll figure out why she, she's not taking her drugs. So uh, you know, one Friday afternoon she comes up I bring the patient in, the mother's in there and the mother's asking her, why did you stop taking your drugs? Why? And I'm asking her the same thing. You know what happens when you stop taking your drugs. Why did you stop taking them? She goes, you won't believe me. I said, try me. I've heard a lot of weird things since I've been here. <laughs> give me a, just Give me a shot. And she goes, uh, the voices told me that the psychiatrist was poisoning me. You know? And they pointed to the side effects and said, these are the side effects, you're being poisoned. And it was true. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, those antipsychotic drugs were toxic. They were being poisoned slowly by these things. They were causing them you know, problems that were you know, rotting out their brain slowly, but they were slowly being poisoned. And uh, uh, she said that uh, I stopped taking them because I was being poisoned. Now, one thing I saw when I first got to the state hospital was that these patients, especially the psychotics, were attacking psychiatrists at a rate far higher than any other staff, including psychologists, psych nurses, um, uh, counselors. Uh, The attack rate was the same as it was with attendants who were living with them on their units 24 hours a day. So I'm like thinking, what are psychiatrists saying to these people they're twerking them off in 15 or 20 minutes a month. They're, they're getting them to attack these people. Well, it was linked to what this lady was saying. And I bet you the voices were telling those people that the psychiatrist was poisoning you also. Uh, mm-hmm. So here's, here's the universities putting out all these psychiatrists, uh, the supreme mental health experts. They're, they're dishing out drugs. They're not curing anything. You know, and they're making a fortune. So the, the global antipsychotic sales in the US alone soared to 14.54 billion in 2021, and is expected to increase to 15.5 billion in 2022. Despite the fact that these drugs are curing nothing, they're making billions of dollars, and that's just in the US. Thousands of the, you know, you got thousands of these drug commercials um, you're not going to go into a psychiatrist's office and come out without a prescription for some psychotic some some drug you know oh you, you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and uh, you got to take this drug so antidepressant market has reached 15.98 billion by 2023 you know that's like uh, 10 years ago no telling what it is now and they're drugging kids I mean they're you know, currently, there's an estimated seven point two million kids on psychiatric drugs. Six hundred twenty-two thousand of them are under the age of five. Eighty thousand them are on, are on for on amphetamines for ADHD. Three hundred eighty-nine thousand are on anxiety drugs. Thirty-eight thousand one hundred forty-three are on antipsychotic drugs. These are drugs that are rotting out their brains, and they're making a fortune doing this none of these drugs are providing any kind of cure for any of the 279 mental disorders you know? So look at look at the results that we're getting with the the, the, the psychiatric mafia in charge of the Western mental health centers and the Western mental health system you know and and the psychiatric uh, the, the big big pharma behind them Now this is years ago, it's much higher now. In 2021, 48,000 Americans killed themselves every year. So in 2021, 48,000 killed themselves. And it's increasing every year. Compare that to the 50,000 soldiers who died in Vietnam in the 10 year war. 50,000 died in Vietnam. 48,000 are killing themselves every year, year after year after year in the United States alone. The CDC reports that 132 uh, people every day kill themselves in the US. Suicide is the 11th leading cause of death in the US. Between 2000 and 2018, the suicide rate increased 37%. And this is with more psychiatric drugs on the planet than have ever been here in the history of mankind. Yeah. So the suicide rate is increasing every year. The CDC said that the suicide rate has reached the highest level since World War II. Yeah. You, can, you can tell by the size of the prison populations that murders, mass shootings, you know, mentally ill are being stuffed into the prison populations. These drugs are doing no good for anything. They're not curing anything. Does this look like a successful mental health system to you? <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. Looking back over more than 40 years, I mean, you know, the, the lies and the propaganda, the deception of these people is incredible. It's a miserable failure, you know? They don't know what what the mind is. They don't know how it works. They, they totally ignore any sp- that we're spiritual beings. They treat us like uh, uh, you know, like broken machines. You know, it's, uh, and and the, the rate of insanity is increasing also. Right now, there's over 3 million people in the United States, or 1% of the U.S. population. Neither big pharma or psychiatry knows what causes it, although they pretend to. You know, they blame genetics, they blame mothers, they blame the the, uh, chemical imbalance. You know, over 100,000 Americans a year are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Suicide is the leading cause of death in schizophrenics. Four out of 10 will attempt suicide. National Institute of Mental Health estimates that 4.9% of schizophrenics will die by suicide. Despite the fact that none of these drugs are curing anything, the psychiatric mafia and big mafia and their big farmers are making a fortune selling these drugs, billions of dollars a year. Nobody's getting better. It's a it's a drug fueled merry-go-round where these people are put on these drugs. They see that they're not working. They stop taking them. They end up getting hospitalized. They get fleeced at the hospital for ten thousand dollars for uh, a hospital admission then they get put back on the drugs again, and it just goes round and round and round and round. You know, it's a spiritually devoid system, and it's a spiritually devoid education system that cures nothing. Uh, so, uh, you, you, you look at the high priest of mental health, you know, so our educational system is pushing out thousands of them every year and they're deemed mental health experts. They don't cure anything. And you might you might say that uh, if you if you looked at the schizophrenic population and you saw that their suicide rate was five to ten times over that of the general population, you, you would you know say with some conviction that they're an unstable population, would you not? You know. So the National Institute of Mental Health estimated that 4.9% of the people with schizophrenia will die by suicide. Their suicide rate is five to 10 times higher than the general population. I wouldn't say they were stable. Now let's take a look at the high priest of uh, mental health, psychiatry, the people who run our mental health system. According to the Journal of the American Medical Association the suicide rate for psychiatrists is 65 out of 100,000 per 100,000, or 5.9 times that of the general population. Their suicide rate is as high as schizophrenics. Oh, my gosh. And these are the people who run our mental health system. The Journal of Clinical Psychology, August 1980, did a five-year study of 18,000 730 consecutive physician deaths uh, by suicide and found that psychiatrists suicide regularly, year after year, at rates, more than twice those expected. And these differences were found to be statistically significant. These are the people who are running our mental health center, our mental health system. You know, oh. these are the, These are the high priests of mental health.
0: Now, now, we you look terrible. at
1: assaults on psychiatrists, this, this is a popularity contest among their patients, number of patient assaults. Assaults over all jobs on a study based on 120,000 assaults from 1987 to 1992 over five years, reported the assault rate for all jobs was 12.6 per 1,000. The assault rate for doctors other than psychiatrists was 16.2 per thousand. The assault rate for custody staff in the institutions who are with these people 24 hours a day are 69 assaults per thousand. The assault rate for psychiatrists is 65 per thousand patients. So 5.9 times that of the general population. They're being attacked by their patients almost six times as much as a regular doctor would. The oh, high priest of mental health. <laughs> the DSM. We talked about the DSM. Complete sham. Yeah. It's totally made up. There is yeah. not one test. There's not one piece of lab work. There, there's no EKG, EEG. There is no test to validate any one of the 295 diagnoses that they have in that in that they're made up yeah it's crazy they're totally made up by psychiatrists and with the help of uh, big pharma so this group of psychiatrists meets every few years two-thirds of them under the thumb of big pharma have some link to big pharma they make up all these diagnoses and then they vote on them they vote them in they vote them out you know so Mm. they they, it was described as a tobacco. Auction. Yeah, you know, a guy comes in and goes, "Hey, I got a di- I got a new diagnosis. It's this," and he reads it off and all the all the symptoms and, and they vote on. it. And if, if they voted in, if big pharma agrees, hey, well, we might could make a medicine for that, you know. Um, yeah. It, and they vote them out, you know. So, they. they it's like ten psychiatrists do this. And and then they put them in this manual, and they they teach it in the university as if it's a truth. It's it's segments of human behavior that they pathologize. They've had diagnoses in there like uh, Southern Bell syndrome. They've had mathematics disorder. I think is in there right now. Caffeine (laughs) intoxication disorder, sibling relational disorder. You know, fights, fights, kids fighting among each other. It's a disorder. You know, sexual orientation disorder. Those are homosexuals. You know, they got Florence disorder. These are, these are people that are overwhelmed by beauty in Florence and, and faint mm-hmm. and get dizzy. <laughs> and they treat it with antidepressants. Florence syndrome disorders, in, it's in the DSM. This is, look at this crap. Paris syndrome, you know, mostly experienced by Japanese visiting France. The Simpsons include depression, anxiety, feelings of persecution, and you know <laughs> what would normally be labeled, you know, culture shock. They made a disorder out of it. Yeah, you know?
0: right. A, the, They'll soon have uh, disorders in there for people like us who can't keep their mouths shut. Yeah,
1: no, I'm, I'm sure they will. You know, 1952, they only had 106 psychiatric dis- disorders, and they make up more every year. Yeah. So they got 297 now. It just goes on and on. Other, other deceptions. I mean, uh, you know, we talked about the chemical imbalance. There are uh, they're, they're, they're claims that antipsychotic drugs are safe. My butt, they're safe, you know, and they don't tell them. You know, they don't tell patients of the danger. Mm-hmm. yeah so that's your Hello, that, that's your western mental health system here
0: yeah that's just that's what we're up against i mean it's good that we have people like you that are coming out you know, before i guess they had like what thomas does and yeah yeah all, all, yeah all thomas Sass, he's, there. A, he's
1: a psychiatrist he came clean um There's a book out called Toxic Psychiatry where another psychiatrist comes out and says, yeah, this is exactly what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I forget the guy's name too. Uh, I think his last name is Davies. He wrote a book called Cracked or something. Uh, Psychology industry is, psychiatry industry is just over-medicating you. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's all driven by big pharma. Now, the psychiatric mafia are drug pushers for big pharma.
0: Yeah. Well, we need more people that are speaking out, telling the truth about this in the numbers because that's going to be the only way at this point that we can get people to be treated with some kind of respect and some kind of dignity rather than just
1: saying, oh, you're broken. Here's a pill. Yeah. And, and you know, there yeah. is, there are new energetic therapies emerging. Like I was telling you, the Mace Energy Method that was come up by John mm-hmm. Mace. I mean, it gets in there, and it cures these mental illnesses. It doesn't do such a great job with psychotics who are hearing strong voices, but it does go in there, and it will actually get rid, get rid of throm- uh, very severe traumas, and it'll do it in a very short time. Now, I've been using the, uh, the MACE Energy System for two years now, and it's miraculous what it does. These people come out of there feeling like new people. You know. Yeah. It it actually works. It's a therapy that actually works. Of course, they're totally ignoring it. You know, they keep yeah. they pushing their drugs. <laughs> you know, so, so there's more information on schizophrenia and the voices on my website at uh, JerryMarzinski.com. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I do have a private practice. Uh, you can you can sign up on the website. I got a little bit of a waiting list at this time, like a, a month or so more. Uh, but uh, there is a cure for a lot of these, a lot of these mental illnesses and, and it happens fast. You know, John Mays found that the mind is not what, what the educational system and psychiatrists and psychologists think it is. You know, he says that the mind only takes pictures of where you focus your attention. And that's all it does. Mm-hmm. The spirit does all the rationalizing, it does the reasoning, it does the thinking, it does everything else. And he found a way where the spirit, which is positive, you know, your spirit is positive, it's pure, it's pure energy. It's like a magnetic field. All this garbage that you picked up in life thwarts that. You know, it's like uh, computer viruses, only these are like mental viruses only they they Mm. consist of um, traumas, shocks, you know, stuff you've gone through in life. And that gets programmed Mm. in as like a computer virus. This system Mm. will go out and and it will take it out because positive attracts negative. Okay, so your your spirit is positive. These, Mace calls them negative identities, are like computer viruses that are programmed into your mind and, and your behavior is funneled through them. So like you were talking mm-hmm. about self-defeating behavior, that's one of them. You know, it's, it's in there. That's programmed in. This system can go in there and take it out. It can take it out in an hour. And it never comes back. Mm-hmm. So it actually cures mental illnesses, unlike the psychiatric mafia that, that are... They're, they're drugging they're, they're drugging the body, basically. You know, so, mm. so all these drugs do is just tamp down symptoms. They don't cure anybody. They don't fix anybody. They just turn you into a zombie. And look what they're doing to the kids. They don't care.
0: Yeah. Well, Jerry, we got to wrap it up.
1: <laughs> yeah what is it it's like uh, midnight it's, getting it's pretty late midnight your time or one in the morning yeah
0: yeah it? it's going on at midnight so let's wrap it up and let's do a second part because i want to talk more about your uh, book with um say sherry yeah your your partner yeah so maybe we can try to get her on for an episode about that oh i'm, she, I'm sure i'm
1: it. sure she'd come on You know, I have some other people that are pretty interesting, too. Uh, One guy who's an engineer now, he was schizophrenic, and he talks about his voices and what he went through when he was hospitalized. Uh, There's another Mm -hmm. nurse who actually did a – she could see spirits from the time she was a child, and Mm -hmm. she had to keep quiet about that, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, she she did an internship on a psych ward, and she actually saw these voices that were plaguing these people and what they looked like. Uh, and, and they were pretty ugly, like the drawings that you saw from that, that one girl. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when you get this out, send me a link.
0: Yeah, I'll do that. All right, Jerry, it's been my honor to talk with you. Okay. Thanks for being on the Boundless Authenticity Podcast.
1: Okay. It's
0: a Pleasure talking to you.